I trust that y'all have had a wonderful week. I know we come on Sunday morning with all different sorts of thoughts and experiences from the week. Some of us have struggled mightily, whether it be from health, whether it be from circumstances. For others, it's been a joyful week. It's been an exciting uh, week. In all of it, one of the wonderful things about joining together, because there are times where, if you're, at least if you're like me, getting out of bed is hard. Uh, it's, you don't necessarily want to get out of bed. You're tired and everything else, and you've got to get yourself up to it, and yet I can't say that I've ever, ever regretted coming and gathering with the saints on Sunday morning with the joy and the fellowship that comes from just being around one another, from being encouraged by one another, praying with one another, singing with one another. And so it's a joy to be here with you again this morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. The very end of chapter 9 is we conclude a pretty significant section. It's really the first of several sections in Matthew's presentation of Jesus as King and Messiah and presents his ministry. As you're turning there, I'm going to make an observation that's nothing new. It's something that you may even chuckle at how obvious it is, but the wickedness in this world confronts us all the time. Whether it's reading the news or watching the news or whether it's going to the grocery store, we're surrounded by it. We read Psalm 53 this morning. God looks down from heavens and every single person in their natural state hates God. They do not desire to serve Him. They do not desire to please Him. If God says do this, they turn and run the other direction. That is every single person's natural inclination. Now when you look at this wickedness, when you consider the wickedness, what words would you use to describe how you feel about it? And think these in, inwardly. If you were to ask the person next to you, what, how would they describe the, the wickedness of the world and how it affects them? And what is, maybe there'd be words such as hatred. I, I hate the sin that I see. There might be grief over it. There might be frustration with it. Under, trying to understand why, why don't people see this? Why don't they understand it? Why do they continue down it? Don't they understand what it's doing to them, what it's doing to those around them, and what the ultimate result is? Now, how about the person practicing those sins, or the persons who practice those sins? Those who celebrate what God calls wicked, how do you feel towards those persons? Would you use the same words to describe your feelings towards those persons, to those who are engaged in ungodly behavior, who act as haters of God? Something that most persons struggle with is not letting Disgust or hatred for sin become hatred for the person and the persons engaged in that sin. When we see wickedness, when we see persons engaging in ungodly behavior, it is far too easy to begin to develop a hardness of heart toward persons. And certainly when we see persons sinning against others, when we watch them hurting others, we should not endorse it. In fact, we should seek to protect the needy, to protect the innocent, the hurting, the marginalized. But how do you avoid hating the one who is sinning, the one participating in wickedness? Well, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, lived on this earth. He was confronted with wickedness of every type, both abstractly with the wickedness in the world and very concretely 
in the persons that he interacted with, that he would meet, that he would in, see on a daily basis. So how did he respond to those persons? How did the perfectly holy Son of God act toward those who hated the Father? How did he think about those who loved the darkness rather than the light? You may already know the answer to this question, but it's the answer to this question which plays a significant part in the motivation of his earthly ministry. It's not the only motivation, but it played a significant part. This morning we're going to look at this motivation Jesus had for his ministry. And then because of that motivation, a method for how we are to engage in faithful ministry. It's a method that he instructs, he commands of faithful disciples as we engage the world around us as disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's read together Matthew 9.35, or beginning in 9.35 through 38, which is our text this morning, as it centers on the ministry motivation of Jesus and his disciples, and see if this morning we can learn to view the world around us as Jesus did, as we seek to faithfully follow our Lord and Savior. Matthew writing in chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray with me. Father, as we look at the text this morning, as we look at your word that you have faithfully preserved through your spirit for centuries, this message that you desire for us to hear this morning as you have brought each of us to this place, that as we look at your words, as we desire to understand that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that long to do your will, to put on the spirit of compassion that we see, to desire to serve and to respond to your instruction. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Our text this morning provides a conclusion and a transition into this new section of Jesus' ministry that begins in chapter 10. But Matthew doesn't hurry through this transition. He has more to help instruct us and teach us as he makes this transition. We have spent, whether you realize it or not, we have spent 12 months since the end of chapter 4 to where we are now. 12 months looking at this ministry of Jesus looking and listening to the preaching and the teaching ministry, observing the working and the miracles and all that he has been doing throughout Galilee, based out of Capernaum, serving all of Galilee. We've watched as he's gone about gathering disciples, as he's preached the message of the kingdom, as he has authenticated it through his works. And so Matthew draws this section now to a conclusion with a careful transition into the next section depicting this growing ministry of Jesus and this next step in that ministry. You see, Jesus has been establishing it. We've seen that. He's been calling these disciples, those who would be his followers, those who would carry on the ministry. He's been laying the foundation, as the New Testament writers describe, the foundation built upon the apostles and the prophets. 
And as his foundation is being laid, and as we see it beginning to take form, he begins to prepare to transition into the next phase of ministry. And as Matthew draws this section to a conclusion that depicts this growing ministry of Jesus, he refers back to those to how he started in his presentation of the ministry of Jesus. Now, you may have noticed as we've gone through these several chapters that I've refrained from too many artificial structures or outlines of the text. And we've just simply worked through it as it's been presented in this narratival text. And that's out of a desire to avoid unnecessary or artificially constraining the text or its emphasis, especially in these narrative sections. It doesn't mean structures are bad. It doesn't mean you can't teach these sections with structures and outlines. But there are times where those outlines can distract or artificially constrain the text. And yet there are times and places, and I would say such as these four verses, that we're going to look at this morning where the arrangement and the structure naturally lends itself to an outline for us. As we look at the verses we've read, you may have already noticed what verses 35, 36, and then 37 and 38 do. Verse 36 provides that, or verse 35 provides that recap of Jesus' ministry that will recapitulate, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that provides something of a bookend to this section. Verse 36 then moves into that motivation that Jesus has for the ministry he has been doing and the ministry that will continue. And then in verses 37 and through 38, Jesus provides us with a method for how we are to begin engaging in this ministry. So we look at Jesus' ministry, we look at a motivation, and we look at a method here. And this outline will help serve us as we move through the text this morning with the primary purpose and our desire of learning to imitate the heart of Jesus in a sinful and lost world and to obey his instructions as his disciples. The summary of Jesus' ministry in verse 35, like I said, takes us back to chapter 4, verse 23, which started this section. And it provides a nice bracket to everything in between. In fact, verse 35 is nearly identical in its summary of Jesus' ministry that we had, where it says that he was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing and working miracles of every kind. Matthew tells us that Jesus has been going through these cities and villages. We've observed that to some extent, though we haven't seen all of them. We know from chapter 4 that this is a reference primarily to the villages and cities of Galilee to the north of Israel at this point. Notice here in verse 35 the extent of Jesus' ministry. Though centered in Capernaum, Jesus ministered throughout all of Galilee. Now without cars, buses, trains, or planes, it took a lot more effort to get around. And yet he consistently went from city to city, synagogue to synagogue, teaching and preaching, and the preaching of the synagogue would have been on a weekly basis, meaning this was an extended ministry. And while the emphasis can clearly be seen on the Jews in Galilee, specifically by the reference to teaching in the synagogues, his ministry included the more Gentile towns. We've seen some of these as he went across the lake to Gadara and the Gadarenes. 
And they were affecting Galilee to the north. There was a much larger Gentile population. And so the extent of his ministry overflowed to even begin, as we've already seen, to impact the Gentiles. You see, Israel was always to be a light to the Gentile nations. It was never a message and a hope solely for Israel. They were merely to be the torch that was lit that would light the world. So Jesus, even as he begins his ministry, focuses upon his own, that is Israel, you begin to immediately see that overflow of his ministry to the world. Now, as you look at that summary, perhaps you are even asking, it says that he was in the synagogues, but I thought the religious leaders hated him. Why was he allowed to teach in the synagogues if there was this growing opposition to him and to his ministry? Well, there's actually just this little reference to him teaching and preaching in the synagogues is a wonderful testimony to the veracity and the historical accuracy of Matthew's account. See, the synagogues had had a practice of allowing visiting rabbis and teachers to teach whenever they came through. And Jesus was considered a rabbi, he was considered a teacher, and he would have been afforded this privilege. Eventually, you see him running them out of the synagogues, but at least this stage of his ministry, they still permitted him to participate in what was the accepted practice at that time. And he used it. He made, made sure to make use of this to ensure that all Israelites in those communities were afforded the opportunity of hearing the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. So Matthew's just small passing reference to this practice is a subtle yet important reaffirmation of the historical accuracy of the gospel account. In fact, all throughout the gospels, they continued to show their historical accuracy over and over and over again, often in subtle ways, just with references to the culture, to the people, to the practices. And here again, Matthew does that as he talks about Jesus' ministry. Now, in addition to the synagogue teaching, we're familiar with the more itinerant ministry of Jesus, whether teaching on a mountainside, as we studied through the Sermon on the Mount, or in houses, as we've seen over and over again or in busy streets. The purpose of this ministry, as Matthew observes, is to proclaim the gospel. That is the good news of the kingdom, to authenticate the preaching ministry and the promise of the coming kingdom through the healing of all forms of disease and sickness. Throughout Galilee, Jesus has been pushing back against the effect of the curse. We've talked about this more than once. In fact, we see that as we see the, the comparison and the overlap between sin and sickness, of disease and spiritual death. And so Jesus uses this authenticating aspect of his ministry, the miracles and the healings, the authenticating of his teaching, and the promise of the kingdom to begin pushing back against the effect of the curse. Every person healed, every miracle performed testifies to the veracity of the coming kingdom and the reversal that will one day take place when all sin, sickness, and death is ended, when the kingdom is established and the king reigns. What better way to picture that than to begin person by person, individual by individual, to roll it back? What I love about this, by the way, is Jesus could have showed up and just healed everybody without that personal touch. But we see over and over again the personalness of his ministry as he touches persons who are the untouchables. 
as he speaks to the persons who are hurting, as he interacts with the Gentile who he should have ignored, as he goes into the places that should have defiled him, he in effect consecrates. As he cares intimately. It's a reminder of the personal nature of salvation, the personal nature of the king. We notice in these texts that are bookended in this section, the first introduction of God as Father. But now, as Jesus is ministering and gaining a greater picture of the people, Matthew records a summary, a view towards his inward thoughts and feelings, his response as he contemplates the persons in these villages and these towns that he has visited. And this response illustrates a motivation for this ministry. And so what is it? What is his overall feeling toward the people in these villages and towns? These who are caught up in the false religion and false Judaism? Well, verse 36 says that upon seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Now, the word for compassion is a reference to the inward bowels of the stomach. It's a very literal and emphatic word for feelings of empathy, sadness, and compassion. And when you feel something deeply, you often have a physical response. We know this, right? We feel those physical responses. I mean, something as simple as, hey, you have butterflies in your stomach. Well, why do we say that? It's because your stomach is uneasy. It feels like it's fluttering when you're nervous or anxious. We talk about you know, being sick to the stomach. Perhaps as a parent, you've observed your children hurt themselves, maybe grievously, and you, you hurt with them. You feel it. You ache. It's this type of empathetic, empathetic compassion and emotion that Jesus is expressing. But why? Why is Jesus expressing this great emotional response. What is the pain? What is the hurt that he is empathizing with? Well, Matthew notes that it's because they, that is the persons in these villages and towns, are like sheep without a shepherd. More specifically, they are distressed and dispirited. Now, these two words translated as distressed and dispirited in the New American Standard Bible are really a bit more graphic. Distressed could be used to describe the flaying or the skinning of an animal. It might be used to describe a sheep attacked by wild beasts with flayed flesh that's been ripped by their claws. The term for dispirited refers to being thrown down, cast down. It could be used to describe a sheep cast to the ground by a wild beast or to describe a sheep scattered lying down with no direction, no understanding of where to go, find food and water, just utterly helpless. Both the attacks of wild beasts and the helplessness, scattering and inability to move to better pasture and water would happen from lack of a shepherd, lack of one to protect them, lack of one to lead them, or from careless or bad shepherds who shirked their responsibility and that's the problem. That's the problem that Israel faced. Quite, quite frankly, it's the problem that the world faces. 
Shortly after Israel was constituted as a nation, Moses prays that the Lord would not leave Israel as sheep without a shepherd when he died. Why? Because he didn't want them to return to the idolatry of Egypt. He didn't want them to forsake the Lord who had saved them, who had led them out of Egypt after ten plagues and miracles through the Red Sea, sustained them for 40 years with manna and with quail, with clothes that wouldn't wear out, with sandals that stayed good for 40 years. We can't even make it one summer. And he didn't want them to turn back to Egypt. And so he prayed that they would have a shepherd. And you know what Jesus or what God's response to Moses was? It was to raise up Joshua. And Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's no accident. In fact, it's a foreshadowing, an antitype of the great Yeshua, the great Savior who would come. And so this picture, this metaphor of Israel and the people as sheep. And the concept of needing a shepherd to lead them is nothing new. It goes back to its earliest days, but sadly, neither is the concept of faithless shepherds. It's not a new concept in Israel's history. Throughout Israel's history, the people are portrayed again and again as sheep with wicked and evil shepherds, longing and looking for the one shepherd, as Solomon calls God in Ecclesiastes 12, constantly longing for the one good shepherd. These under-shepherds, these leaders of Israel, were to be an example, were to be God's emissaries, his delegates, to care for, to lead, and to prepare for the one shepherd. And yet with little reprieve, Israel suffered under these under-shepherds, who were frequently abused in their positions of leadership, whether king or priest. These persons fed off the backs of the people. They abused them. They enslaved them to systems and regulations that had little to do with true godliness. At times, leading them into rank idolatry. Creating man-made religious systems, some of which only merely resembled the true worship of Yahweh. We've talked about what Israel was currently enduring at the time of Jesus at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes who bared them with legalism and law upon law upon law, man-made requirement upon man-made requirement. They were burdened. In Ezekiel 34, God set about to rescue the nation from the hands of false shepherds where the leaders had utterly failed and the people of Israel were spiritually and socially languishing. And it's in light of this history of abuse and neglect to the sheep of Israel that Jesus arrives on the scene. And as he goes about from city to city, village to village, town to town, interacting with the people, he sees them not as wicked persons who are themselves the enemy, but he feels great compassion for them. Yes, they were wicked. Yes, they practiced wickedness. Yes, in their heart, they were at enmity with God. And yet, what is his response? It's compassion and it's mercy. In fact, it's in light of this abuse and this neglect to the sheep of Israel that Jesus felt such compassion. 
And it's identified as one of the motivating rationales for the sending forth of the disciples and the missionary work upon which they will enter in the coming chapters. This term for compassion doesn't belong just to Scripture. It was a term that existed outside of the Scriptures. However, the New Testament writers limited their use of this term specifically and almost exclusively to the compassion of Jesus and God for the lost. And they did that because they wanted the connotation that builds within Scripture to center and emphasize the loving, caring compassion of God the Father for His children, for the world, for His creation. We've discussed more than once that Jesus is the representation of God the Father. This expression of compassion and mourning is an expression that is in perfect harmony with God's view toward all mankind. Yes, God looks down and he sees that all are desperately wicked, that there is none who of himself will seek him. And yet rather than simply wiping mankind from the face of the earth, he looks down with compassion a compassion that motivated him to send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And Jesus reflects this compassion here. It's a compassion that Peter records when he says that God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God patiently waits, endures hatred and enmity from his com creation with compassion. And notice how this motivation does not focus on the wickedness of the people. It doesn't mean that they are not wicked. Yes, they are lost. In fact, that's the very reason for the motivation. But instead, it identifies their great pain and their neediness. It identifies the danger which they are in as they are heading headlong toward the fires of hell without a shepherd to protect or restrain them. The sorrow and the compassion anticipates the promise of Matthew 2.6. And Matthew 2.6 itself refers back to Micah 5, beginning in chapter 2. In fact, turn there if you would to the Old Testament prophet Micah. Probably familiar with Micah 5.2, maybe even 5.3, but... I want to read 5, 2 through verse 5. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. It's the rescuing of the sheep and the process of making his name great to the ends of the earth that begins with his coming. Matthew is setting up the early work and the start to the process of proclaiming his name to the ends of the earth, the very ministry and mission that Jesus commissions his disciples with at the end, the very last thing he does before ascending to heaven 
after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You can turn back to Matthew, but go right past where we are, all the way to the end, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, beginning down in verse 18. It was after his death and his burial, it was after he had risen from the grave, that Jesus came up to his disciples and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Keep going to the right to Acts chapter 1 before it gets into the history of the church, deals with the very last days of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, upon this earth. Look down in verse 4 of chapter 1. Gathering them together, that is, his disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of it, of that from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you were restoring the kingdom of Israel? He responded and said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You see the beginning and the missional fulfillment of the promise to make his name great to the ends of the earth. And the process begins with the disciples going out and doing what he has told them to do. It culminates with his return when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But what I want us to note this morning and recognize something that's very important is that behind this, behind the motivation or what comprises the motivation that Matthew highlights here behind that ministry is a compassion for the lost. This this motivation is an essential and indispensable attitude of those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. If you take away nothing else, it is that you must have compassion. But how do you do that? How do you cultivate compassion? How do you just, can you just manufacture it? How do you change the way you feel about persons? Especially those who practice wickedness. Well, your ability to minister, your ability to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, your ability to be obedient to Jesus Christ will be severely hindered if you do not have this compassion. But how do I do it? There's actually many ways to begin cultivating that. One of them is to start by developing first a biblical theology around sin. Understand 
sin and what it is. Understand how pervasive it is. Understand its end, which is hell, separation from God, eternity of suffering. Read Scripture regularly. Read it thoroughly. Start in Genesis where sin enters the world. Look and remind yourself of what it takes to deal with sin. But then next, take that understanding that you begin to develop of sin and don't start looking at others, start looking at yourself. Focus on your sin. Focus on fighting the sin in your life. Doing as John Owen says, mortifying the flesh. That is putting to death the sinful inclinations, the sinful practices that I lean toward each and every day and killing them. Regularly, continually praying, putting into practice confession and repentance over and over and over again. And then once you've done that, then begin praying for persons. And there doesn't have to be a long time period between doing these things. It can be as you're doing these things. But pray for God to give you compassion and patience toward those who sin. And the reason you start with yourself is because it gives you much greater patience. As you understand your need for forgiveness, it's much easier to have compassion on others. Does it make what's being done any less wrong? Does it make the sin any less grievous to God? Having that empathy, though, and that compassion, it doesn't nullify the penalty for sin, but it gives you the eyes and the heart of Jesus. It motivates you for missions. And there is not a single person in this room who is not called as a disciple of Jesus Christ to be a missionary. It may be at home. It may be in your community. It may be called out of this place. But we must begin cultivating compassion. We have to fight against critical spirits. And I'm talking about our critical attitudes. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to criticize, to attack, to look down, to find the negative? That is the easy part of life, is finding the negative. The hard part is turning that negative and not focusing on it, turning away from it. And instead, searching through it and finding, what is God doing? How do I praise Him? My sinful flesh is inclined to think negatively. So how do I think joyfully? And so as I look at the wickedness in this world, it's not attacking. It's not making enemies. It's compassion and compassion. Matthew reminds us, First of the ministry of Jesus. And then he takes us in and shows us the compassion he has, the compassion that God has that Jesus reflects towards the world and sinners. Next, in verses 37 and 38, we begin to see a, a method, really the beginning of a method for ministry, rooted in responding to that compassion. Matthew says in verses 37 and 38, that Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Put very simply, ministry begins with prayer. The method, the approach toward gospel ministry is rooted first in prayer. Beseech the Lord of the harvest. Call out, beg of him, pray to him. Now, in order to understand this better, we need to understand the meaning of the harvest. The metaphorical or figurative use of harvest is most frequently found in the context of judgment throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And while the context of judgment is almost always at place in the metaphorical usage, we also need to pay attention to the context that we're dealing with here. In this case, we see the harvest tied to the compassion of Jesus. We'll see it if you were to keep reading into chapter 10 of Matthew. You would see that it leads to sending out of workers. And so in this case, harvest is tied to the compassion of Jesus. And while it's appropriate to note the judgment connotation, here it's in the background. It's not that it's gone. It's just the judgment, the impending judgment, is very much in the background. Jesus is focusing on the harvest of persons out of compassion. Certainly the sorrow and compassion Jesus feels is exacerbated in light of the knowledge he has of the coming day of the Lord, the judgment and what it will mean for those who are not brought into the kingdom before that time. But the harvesting here is not the harvesting of judgment, but of rescuing persons from that judgment. The harvest language, when used metaphorically in the Old Testament and throughout Matthew, focuses primarily on the coming day of the Lord. However, the perspective Jesus has towards the coming harvest here is on the many who are ready to hear and receive and respond to the word of the Lord. As D.A. Carson notes, the use of the adjective many changes the focus here from the harvest itself, which is likely judgment, to the persons, the lost sheep of Israel, and specifically the many who are ready to receive the message of the kingdom. Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to approach this harvest from a very different perspective. He'll approach it from the perspective of judgment, those who will perish. But here the harvest is mentioned only in relation to the preparation of the many to receive the message of the kingdom and be rescued because of God's great compassion. And don't miss that the metaphorical harvest language here is certainly not accidental, it's not incidental. But what its purpose is, how it functions here, when you understand the judgment that is associated with the harvest so frequently used, is that it creates an urgency with Jesus and the disciples, an urgency for going out and calling to those who will respond, preaching the message while it is still today, before the end of the age comes. In other words, there is an end. This is not an open-ended harvest. It will come to an end, and with it will come judgment. So hurry. Pray with that intensity. Pray with that end in mind. Pray with that urgency. Here Jesus is preparing 
to fulfill the promise he had made when he began calling some of those disciples in chapter 4 where he said, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus here bemoans the paucity, that is the lack of workers, given the many of the harvest. The many who are ready to receive and respond to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And given the compassion of Jesus, coupled with the sending that we'll see take place in chapter 10, the harvester, harvesters are to be disciples who join Jesus in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But Jesus first calls his disciples and says, come in, listen. I want you to hear my heart. The compassion and the anguish I have over the lost sheep, over those who are hurting, over those who are cast down, over those who have been abused, over those who have been lied to, with all the false religions that exist in this world, with all of the false teaching, with all that is going on, I hurt for them. Come in and hear my heart. And creates with them that same desire and that urgency for mission. So how does Jesus determine to solve the problem? How does he solve the problem of these lost sheep scattered about and the great anguish that he feels? Does he first tell them to go out and start preaching? No. We know that he will do that, but what does he do first? He calls on his disciples to pray. To pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send workers into his harvest. Notice that Jesus here identifies the owner of the harvest. That is, the metaphorical fields. Wherever you will find people, there is one owner. It's because there is one creator. There is one God. The owner is God himself. Jesus says to pray that God would send workers into his fields. Fields here are the locations where persons might be found, which is to the ends of the earth, which is why in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, we find Jesus saying, go out to the ends of the earth. Wherever there are persons, this preaching must take place, which is why Jesus says this. Now here in these verses, Jesus speaks to a larger group of disciples. It's probably at least 70 to 100, probably more. And they are to begin praying. This is a command, pray for workers. What I love is that in chapter 10, we see the answer to this prayer very clearly, very specifically answered as the first workers are sent out, these disciples. He sends out the 12 from amidst the larger group. We know later he'll send 70 out. Ultimately, he'll send all of his disciples out. All who call upon the name of Jesus become his disciples and are commissioned with this. Now we'll look at the sending of the disciples in the weeks ahead, but right now, we are focusing on the preparation for the sending and prayer specifically that God would send and he would save. The application from these passages and these verses are not difficult to ascertain. Out of the compassion that we are to cultivate, we need to develop a habit and practice of praying for God to send out workers. We need to cultivate a focus on missions, locally and globally. 
And our first responsibility in cultivating that, the first aspect, the method for doing this begins with prayer. And note, this is a command. It's not a hint. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. He shares his heart of compassion and then says, Beseech the Lord of the harvest. Not if you feel like it. Not if it happens to come to mind tomorrow. He says, do this. So are you doing this? Are you faithfully praying that the Lord would send workers into the harvest? Now remember also, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but many of you know the rest of the story. Remember that among those whom Jesus is standing there telling them to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest, that amongst those are the twelve who are about to be sent out. They don't know they're about to be sent out yet. For us, as we have commissioning which has been given to all disciples at the end of Jesus' ministry to go forth and make disciples. We've, we've received this same commissioning. But it begins with prayer. To fail to pray is like neglecting to put gasoline in the car before going on a trip. You'll only make it so far on the fumes that are in the tank. You want to see a church grow? Well, the most natural and healthy way for any church to grow is through the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of persons whom the Spirit has prepared to receive that message. It's not through programs. It's not through advertising. It's through preaching the gospel. So we must be diligent to be part of the harvesting as we receive and have received the commission to make disciples. Some will be sent out further. Again, like those 12, while some will pray for those who are sent, some who pray will be sent. They'll be sent out to the ends of the earth. We're all to go and be disciple makers in wherever God has placed us, but some will be sent much further. And are you praying for those that have been sent out? For more to be sent out? Do you pray regularly for missions and missionaries? We have our prayer sheet. There's a list of items that our missionaries ask for prayer each and every month. Are you faithfully going through that list? If not, pick it up and start doing it. Jesus commands his disciples to pray for this. And again, if you call yourself a Christian, if you have experienced the transforming work of the Spirit, then you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So you have the exact same command here. Pray. Notice this relationship between missions and prayer. If you struggle on your own to preach the gospel, if you struggle with witnessing, with starting up conversations... If you struggle with these things, to share it with those around you, it is likely because you are not praying regularly. Perhaps you aren't praying fervently, consistently, with the compassion for the Lord to send workers into the harvest. That motivation and that method are intimately connected. You must continually develop that heart of compassion, not cynicism for the world around you. 
cynicism and hatred for this world, no matter how wicked persons may seem, will dry up your prayer life faster than anything else. Instead, cultivate compassion and pray to the Lord of the harvest. Another motivation here is to remember and look to the harvest itself. As we proclaim the gospel, the coming judgment should serve as motivation. Feeling compassion is important, but compassion without any sense of urgency is almost useless. Sense the urgency, feel the urgency. When considered with compassion, the final judgment becomes an excellent motivator and reminder to pray. As Grant Osborne notes, the church moves forward on its knees. It's not through programs or human effort, but through the power of God in response to prayer. These verses in Matthew 9 draw to a close the introduction to Jesus' ministry and the proclamation of hope of a coming kingdom. And we'll see that message continue to be proclaimed over and over again. But Matthew closes out this section with a reminder of the calling that every disciple of Jesus Christ has. And it's to imitate Christ, to put on a heart of compassion. And having put on a heart of compassion, to pray earnestly and fervently with the added motivation of that final judgment that God would send out workers into the harvest. And while praying, do not be surprised if you find yourself surrounded with opportunities for preaching the good news, for preaching the gospel, for making it known. Don't be surprised if persons come up to you and start asking questions because God will answer that prayer. The question is going to be whether you are ready when it comes your way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great compassion that is expressed here, for the mercy that is shown, the heart of Christ that we see. Lord, help us to develop this heart of compassion. Help us to see everyone outside of these doors as the mission field to proclaim your gospel to not shirk back to make nothing else a priority over ensuring that you are magnified and made known For, Lord convict us where we have not been diligent to pray as we should help us to begin doing that as we should Father let us pray for our own opportunities and Father, would you send workers into the harvest? May we see the fruit of that work. May we rejoice together in it. In your name, amen.